Well, it's been a while since I've invited you to turn to the book of Exodus, so we'll do that now. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 22. We um, had been looking through this book from chapter 1, and we're now in chapter 22. And we'll, if the Lord allows, press on through to the end of this book. We took a little break and looked at First John, um, gained the teaching of the assurance of our salvation rooted in God's grace, uh, His Word uh, conveyed to us, received by faith, uh, demonstrating life's holiness. We get to return to this wonderful book of Exodus, and I want to read to you uh, just a, a few verses to... Um, come back to this passage, but we'll, we'll be dealing with more than I read just now. I read to you Exodus chapter 22, verses 16 through 20. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Welcome back to Exodus. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, your word is always good, always right, is true. And we thank you, Father, that you've given us this precious gift to a gift that we should not ever take for granted. Lord, I pray that you would instruct us from your word, you know, that every word breathed out by the Spirit is profitable to us. So we ask that of you now, that you profit us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Those laws that just read, sound obscure, strange, foreign, far removed from our society, that it may cause some to wonder why in the world would you study something like this? Why would you spend time going through laws such as these? What possible application could these laws have in our 21st century lives? Are we actually expected to live by these? Is there any value here beyond just looking at an ancient code like that of the Code of Hammurabi? Well, I think that there is quite a bit of help for us. There's quite a bit of application to the world in which we live. On any given day, there are a variety of places that you can drive by or drive near that would have direct application to this passage call when we lived outside of Seattle just to make some normal errands, uh, we'd have to drive by a Buddhist temple or a, a Sikh place of worship. There would be a Planned Parenthood regularly passed by, palm readers, countless apartments and houses that are housing couples that are cohabiting together without being married, courts of law, these are the kinds of things that 
this legal code are, is actually referring to. And when you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you accept that Scripture is the Word of God. It's really how we come to know Him. And that this book is the book of books, and it is the revelation of God Himself. It reveals to us who He is, what He is like, and what He expects, His holiness, His righteousness. And His Word is a lamp to our feet, guide to our path. It tells us how He wants us to live, and it teaches us things that we cannot learn from mere experience, or human ingenuity. It requires the revelation of the mind of God given to us, written down in his book for us to know these things. These are things that left to ourselves we would not necessarily come to as a conclusion that these are right ways for us to live. So we open God's book. We understand that it is to us the revelation of God himself of what he thinks, for when you know what he thinks, you know who he is. And so we have to open this to see the greatness of our God, and we look at his law, a revelation of his holy and right standards given to humanity. And as you look at these things, and you take them with humility and with a teachableness, you realize that God dwells in a level of holiness that we can never obtain. That the kind of expectation of life that God has on human beings is such a holiness that we realize at once we all fall short. And so while we look at the law of Exodus, we realize that the law of Exodus falls into the greater context of the whole of Scripture. And the whole of Scripture is really a description of the holy God displaying his mercy to sinners like us. The law brings us to a point where we are convicted of our unrighteousness, of our unholiness. But scripture goes on to present to us the reality that the same God who gives us the law is the God who gives us his gospel and his son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to bear the curse that we rightly deserve for breaking his legal code. So the whole of Scripture has to be kept in mind when we look at a text like this. Yes, it reveals the mind of God, the righteousness of God, the standard of God. It brings us conviction. And at the same time, it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, for those who have been brought to Christ, who have been born again, who know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we look at texts like this not for condemnation so much anymore, when we look at it as a, a revelation of the very God whom we have been brought to worship and know. And so we can say, like the psalmist does in Psalm 19, that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And the feeling that we have when we look into God's word ought to be like the psalmist of Psalm 19. He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
Not because we come to it any longer looking for condemnation, but because Christ has brought us through condemnation to grace and forgiveness. So we look at this expecting to learn about our great God, what he's like and what he expects of us. Of course, we have to understand a little bit more of the setting of this law. Perhaps you recall that this is given by God to a people, Israel, that he's just rescued out of the clutches of Pharaoh who enslaved them in the land of Egypt. And they've been rescued miraculously by God, redeemed by him. They've been brought to the foot of this mountain, Mount Sinai. And from that mountain, God is speaking to Moses, who will then communicate his law to the people of Israel. And they are being taught that they are a people who have been purchased by God's power. And now they belong to him exclusively, the holy God. And as a result, they need to have holy lives to match the God to whom they belong. They are to be a people who display God's holiness in this world. That's who Israel was supposed to be. Of course, we have to realize we are not Israel. We are not at the Mount Sinai. We do not have Moses mediating the law to us. And yet we understand, don't we, that this law is rooted still in the same God whom we worship today in his very nature, in his righteousness. And it reveals a standard, but it gives no power to keep it. And that's where the gospel comes in, for the gospel not only includes the forgiveness of the sins that we've committed, but the giving of the Holy Spirit into our very hearts to help us now have the power to live in the way that God requires of us. And so when Jesus came, he came not just to forgive us of our sins, but also to show us how to live according to God's ways. So when he came in Matthew chapter 5, he came teaching, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them, he says. And he fulfills them in keeping them and in teaching the true heart of them so that we see how we are to live in response to the holy God. And he fulfills it also by giving us of his spirit that enables us to live God's way. So we don't come to the law thinking that we keep it in exactly the same way that Israel kept it. We indeed cannot do that. Israel was a nation. We, the church, are not a nation in the same way that Israel was and is. Israel was a theocracy that had a functioning political government with the king and judges and priests, and they had the authority delegated by God to carry out civil and criminal punishments for when this law was not kept. So we look at something like this and we read, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. You might be tempted to start going around looking for sorceresses and to have some sort of stoning party, but we don't have that kind of authority. We as a church have been given a commission by the Lord Jesus Christ to go to the nation and teaching them to observe all that he has commanded of them, making disciples of them. That's our obligation. We teach them the gospel and the forgiveness of sins. And if they do not repent, then judgment is in the hands of God. We have no authority to exercise that. We have a different mission, in a sense, now. We do not have a centralized government 
except for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is centrally located at the right hand of the Father and will one day come again and execute judgment on his enemies. And we wait for him to do that. But still, as we look at a passage like this, we behold the righteousness of God revealed to us. We see his holiness on display, and the topics that he addresses are topics that we indeed encounter almost every day in some way, shape, or form. Sexual immorality is all around us. A call to be totally devoted to God is constantly on our lives. There is the presence around us of the engagement in witchcraft and sorcery. Worship and giving of ourselves to God is constant. Legal justice is something we encounter, and neighborliness is something that we encounter on a daily basis. And each one of these topics addressed in the text that we'll look at reveals something of the holiness of God. Not just how he is, but how he expects his people to be. And so we look at these laws, not only understand the holiness of God, but the holiness of God that is to be displayed through his people. So that's what we'll spend the rest of our time looking at. How is God's holiness to be displayed through his people? First, we see that God's holiness is to be seen in his people's sexual and religious purity. God's holiness is to be seen in his people's sexual and religious purity. In many ways, sexual purity is a picture of purity in worship. Throughout scripture, there is a connection, at least in a picturesque kind of fashion, of purity in the realm of sexuality to the purity of, in the realm of religious devotion. The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. That commandment is almost like a wedding vow that a bride vows to her bridegroom. It speaks of exclusive commitment to the groom. That there is a relationship between bride and groom that is to be inviolable. And that relationship is to be consummated and displayed in its most intimate fashion in the sexual union that husband and wife possess. And in many ways, the kind of relationship God has between his, him and his people is to be mirrored in the kind of relationship that a husband and wife have. That exclusive commitment is to be the kind of commitment that is between God and his people, as well as between a bride and her husband, the husband and his bride. There are many biblical statements about the kind of sexual purity that God honors and desires among his people. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The Bible is really unequivocal that sexual purity means an exclusive sexual relationship between husband and wife and no sexual expression outside of that at all. That's sexual purity. Let the marriage bed 
be undefiled and honored among all. Same time, God values religious purity, and he pictures for us religious impurity by comparing it to adultery. To take, for example, the book of Hosea, which is founded on the prophet Hosea being commanded by God to take an adulterous woman as his wife to picture the kind of relationship that Israel has with their God, namely one of adultery, where they keep on going after other gods. So Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 says, When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. The expectation of God's people is to be both sexually pure and religiously pure, demonstrated in an undivided commitment to God. Consistent assumption, the whole of Scripture, is that the only authorized sexual relationship is that between a husband and a wife or life. Jesus goes so far to say that if a man divorces his wife, he forces her to commit adultery if she marries another. Because that union is so profound and so intimate, God looks at it as exclusive. And exclusivity is the key. And that's why God places such a high premium and speaks so often in his word about virginity. It's mentioned in the text, it's mentioned throughout the Old Testament and even New Testament, and it's given to show that the preservation of sexual purity is to be kept by those who are not married, by not engaging in any kind of sexual relationship. It shows that our sexual ethic and practice are a reflection to some degree of our purity toward God self or of our impurity towards God and our adulterous heart when we go after other things besides them. Just as there is to be self-control of our bodies and not interacting sexually with anyone besides your spouse, there is to be self-control in our hearts as well, not yielding them to other things besides the one true God. He alone is to have our hearts. And I think that's the theme of these opening verses, 16 through 20, in reference to seducing a virgin, even a sorceress, and bestiology, and sacrificing to another God. It shows that marital purity, sexual purity, is akin to religious purity. Well, let's look at these commands very quickly. That first one speaks about a man who seduces a virgin and sleeps with her. The woman was not betrothed to be married, that means she wasn't engaged. If she was, the penalty would be much more severe. But she wasn't engaged to be married, and so in some way this man comes along and seduces her, lies with her. Not rape, there's another word for rape. There's some level of consensualness to this, where the girl goes along, but the responsibility is on the man, for he is the one who has seduced this woman into this. There are consequences. If this happened in Israel, this man who did this 
was now required to make a payment of a bride price and to marry this girl. That was the expectation. The bride price wasn't so much a purchase price as, a, as it was a means to give some sort of security to the woman. The Hebrew word is mohar. It's used in a couple of different places in the Old Testament. And it's not that this man is buying this woman into some sort of marital slavery. Rather, it is a rather large sum of money that needs to be given to the bride's family that will likely be held onto in case this man turns out to be a loser and abandons his wife, and now this woman has some sort of financial security to fall back on. The amount of money that would be given would be likely several years' wages. You see that in the story of Jacob when he has to work seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel. Huge amount of money. And it ought to act, in a sense, as a deterrent from just going and sleeping with whoever you want because there are going to be responsibilities that come with that. Imagine, for just a second, how radically different our society would be if attached to sexual intercourse, there was the responsibility to pay several years' wages to the family of the woman that you took. And the obligation to marry that woman if the father says yes. We live in a society that is so sexually promiscuous that it just feels like as long as there is some level of agreement, you can go and take whoever you want. God does not look at at it that way. There's a caveat here that the father can identify that this man is a first-rate loser and says, there's no way you're marrying my daughter. I think a lot of dads would like this law to remain in effect. But guess what? Guys still have he still has. Because that sexual relationship, so valued, so prized, so important, cannot be treated poorly. There's always responsibility. That's the picture of sexual purity and the expectation. Next, it goes on to this law about sorceress. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Sorcery was practice of witchcraft by using incantations and spells and herbs and drugs to try to manipulate the spiritual realm to get circumstances to go how you want them to go. It is trying to kind of harness spiritual power towards your own personal gain. God gives no authorization to that. He reveals to us how we are to engage with spiritual power, namely by faith in his word. And if you go outside of that, you are violating his legal code and his ways that we are to work. But nevertheless, this sorcery is kind of a, a common element of pagan religion, the very religions that Israel was going to go in and displace in the land of Canaan. They would use sorcery to interact with the spirit realm. And God will not tolerate that among his people. And so he tells them to not engage in that, even to go so far that they have legal authority to put a sorceress to death. 
We don't have that authority, but certainly we would understand the principle that God never allows people to engage in the spirit realm except by the very means that he reveals in his word. He requires that we have absolute purity in the way that we interact with him. We must not defile it with coming up with our own ways to reach God or reach the spirit realm. Goes on to the next law about bestiality, lying with an animal. The death penalty was in effect for that, and this one, like sorcery, was also a component of the religions that Israel was to go in and displace in the land of Canaan. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 23 and 24, the law says this, and you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it, neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it, it is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. There's the very practices that God looked at in the foreign, in the other nations in Canaan and displeased, they displeased him with those actions. Israel was to be completely pure in their pursuit of the Lord and not involved in their religion, any of the components of the very religion that they're going to displace. And this all kind of comes to a point in verse 20, when it tells what's to happen about anyone who sacrifices to another God. That's really the culmination of bringing in the components of another religion into your own. Anyone in Israel who decided that they were going to worship another God and show their devotion by bringing the sacrifice was to be devoted to destruction. That basically means that because they did not sacrifice to God alone, Yahweh alone, they themselves would become the sacrifice in their death. Serious stuff. For Israel. Does God care any less about our own purity? No, we don't have the authority to exercise the death penalty on those who violate this law, but God, our God in heaven, remains the same, and He expects His people to be completely pure in our sexual purity, which is also a reflection of the kind of purity we are to have for the Lord. So God's holiness is to be displayed in both our sexual and our religious purity. It should be remarkable in our lives, the kind of purity God's people have. Secondly, God's holiness is to be on display in another way. It's to be on display in the way his people treat those kind of people who are easy to mistreat. God's holiness should be on display in our lives by how we treat those who are easy to mistreat. James, in the New Testament, tells us of the temptation that is in us to be partial towards those who can kind of scratch our backs if we scratch theirs. James chapter 2, verse 1 says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? That's the New Testament. Here in Exodus, so this way, verse 21 of Exodus 22, shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is, it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am passionate. God's expectation is that his people of Israel would look at war, fatherless, the widow, sojourner, and have compassion on them. Treat them well, not oppress them. That's certainly something God expects of his people throughout all time, but I just want to remind you of the remarkable truth that when the New Testament refers to believers, it refers to us as sojourners and exiles in this world. This is not our home. We are the ones who ought to be poor because Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We ought to be the one who are mourning because blessed are those who mourn. And so in a sense, we are the ones who are poor in ourselves. We are the ones who are exiled and sojourners. And it is an amazing thing that how the world treats the people of Christ will be a deliberate component of how Jesus judges the world. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus lays out how people treat him is based on how people treat his people. And Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 40, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. How the world treats church will be a component of how they are judged in eternity. But the main emphasis here in Exodus is not so much on that, but more on how his people treat those who are easy to mistreat. And of course, we should treat them well. Israel had every reason to treat those who were oppressed, those who were poor, those who were sojourners, had every reason to treat them well. Why? Well, look at 23 verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Just a few months prior, they had been enslaved with a tyrant trying to exact every ounce of strength that they had from them, doing horrible kinds of tasks. How could they forget that and then go on and mistreat someone themselves? And for us, ought we not to be people of the greatest kind of compassion? Because weren't we in the worst estate in our sin? Weren't we enslaved and living in darkness without any hope in ourselves of any kind of help? 
wasn't it God himself and all of his grace that came and rescued us from that darkness, that enslavement, that tyranny that we lived under to sin? And it's all of grace and not of our own works. It's all of God and his kindness and love towards us. And so shouldn't we be the most compassionate, caring kind of people? Because we understand and remember what it is like to receive loving kindness. God, of course, gives to Israel these practical instructions. Do not oppress the sojourners. Do not mistreat widows and orphans. And if you lend to the poor, don't exact interest from them. Don't try to make money off of them. And if they give you their cloak and pledge that they're going to pay back their loan, which they should pay back their loan, that's assumed. But if you take their cloak and pledge, don't keep it overnight. Because that's their warmth for the night. It's all they have. What else will we sleep? Says in verse 27. Why should you do that ultimately? Because if you oppress him, he cries to the Lord, guess who hears? The Lord hears. And the Lord is compassionate. He goes on to give descriptions of the kind of judgment he will bring on those who do not act in this way. It's amazing, isn't it, though, that here, Moses says, don't take another's cloak and pledge. But what does the Lord Jesus say? In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if someone takes your cloak, don't ask for it back. The holiness of God is to be so displayed in the lives of his people. Not only do we treat those who are oppressed with compassion and kindness, but we treat those who oppress us with love and kindness as well. God's grace should be so deep in our hearts and our lives that it extends even to those who mistreat us and his holiness be on display there you see how jesus really takes the law and takes it to its deepest expressions of holiness and grace and he tells us someone would sue you and take your tunic let him have your cloak as well so god's holiness needs to be seen in the way his people treat those who are easy to mistreat also needs to be seen in our sexual and religious purity. Thirdly, God's holiness needs to be seen in his people's devotion to their God. The whole of our life, with no part left out, needs to be devoted to God. Romans chapter 12, I read earlier, verse 1, says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Law in Exodus puts it this way, Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to dogs. For Israel, they were to be consecrated to the Lord. That is, devoted to him in every element of their life, even in what they ate. They were totally to belong to him. Because of that, reviling him is totally out of the question. Verse 28, shall not blaspheme the Lord. 
Because we understand we live under the authority of God, his people ought to have the greatest kind of respect for human authority. It says you shall not curse a ruler of your people. That'd be a political leader or a religious leader in Israel because they understand they live under the authority of God would then transfer the way they treat human authority based on how they treat the ultimate authority, God himself. And their reflection of how they treat human authorities is really reflected on how they think about the ultimate authority. I think this is an area where the freedom of our nation has been a, in a sense of detriment to the kind of speech that we offer as Christians against our leaders. We feel so free to say whatever we want about them that we speak in a way that is ungracious, reviling, and cursing. That's not to say we should always agree with them or we can't disagree with them. But scripture says in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 20, even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your wounds, or some winged creature tell the matter. Or Paul's example in Acts 23, when he's before the council giving testimony, and he's struck by order of the high priest, and Paul responds in Acts 23, verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And then those who stood by said to Paul, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said this, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. If ever there was a time to speak evil, you'd think that was it, yet Paul recanted what he had done based on this commandment. So our devotion to God really is expressed in a way in the way that we speak about the rulers of people around us. And also in the way that we give. Verse 29, it says, You shall not delay to offer. For Israel, being devoted to God completely, meant that whatever they had, Whatever resources that God blessed them with, mostly in the crops would be the main income that they had, or the livestock that they had, part of it had to be given to the Lord. And not after they filled up their storehouse, not after they saw how many were going to be born this year to their livestock. Do not delay. First and above all, you give to the Lord because He is the one that we devote the whole of our life to. And when we do it without delay and we give to him first, we realize that really everything that we have is to the Lord. We can make easy excuses of that now. We say, well, in the New Testament, we're not under the tithe, which is true. God loves a cheerful giver, said it's true. You might think, well, God knows how much I have. It's all his. When I put that down payment on that Ferrari, that's for him. We know that's not what he's talking about. We know when we give, it is to be sacrificially for the benefit of others and for the advance of the kingdom and the gospel. But he's primarily looking from us for that devotion expressed in cheerful giving and sacrificial giving. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12 says, For if the readiness there is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not. Give according to what you have. Give joyfully. Give without delay. 
And that shows the holiness of God in your life by displaying that you are completely given to every part of your life. Show God's holiness in our life in all these ways, our sexual purity, religious purity, how we treat others, by our devotion to the Lord, and fourth and finally, God's holiness should be seen in his people's commitment to justice. God's holiness should be seen in his people's commitment to justice. God's nature is that he is absolutely and completely righteous and just in all that he does. He never does anything unjust or unrighteous. And so his people ought to live in a way that reflects that character of God. And so he expects that of them. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, you shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Israel had a legal system, and it was to be robust in the way that it executed the law. There was to be an absence of false witness, of going with the crowd, of partiality, of indifference to those who can do nothing for you, and of bribes. All of those corrupt justice. And while we don't have a legal court system that we operate at the church, we certainly understand the danger of being influenced by partiality, or by even a form of bribery, or by a malicious witness, which is slander and gossip. We understand all those things really pervert justice, that the perversion of justice communicates lies about people, brings hardship into people's lives. The extent of the kind of justice that we are to have is a justice that extends so far that it truly shows no partiality to anyone, but rather will even do what is right to those who you do not like, those who you call your enemy. So sandwiched between these laws about a legal system are these descriptions of a situation where you may encounter your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray or overburdened. And because God's people were to be so just, they were not to look at his enemy's ox or beast of burden of any capacity, see it floundering, and think, well, that's my enemy, and he's getting what he deserves, so I'm going to leave him. God's justice is so thorough that even if God's people sees their enemy's donkey or ox floundering, you are to help it rather than try to get your enemy what he deserves according to you. You always operate according to God's standard, not your own personal inclination. Jesus goes so far, not only do you help the ox or the donkey of your enemy, 
What are you supposed to do with humanity? Love them. Pray for those who persecute. Bless those who persecute. That is, in a sense, an expression of God's justice going so far to bring mercy equally even to those who think don't deserve. Because we go by God's standard, not ours. How is God's holiness displayed in your life? Is it displayed in your sexual purity? In your religious purity? Is it displayed in how you treat others? Is it displayed in the way that you are devoted completely to God? Is it displayed in the way that you allow His grace to work in you to such an extent that you will even bless you? It's the way God displays His holiness in this world, primarily through His Father, help it to be this in our lives where we do not act the hypocrite, claiming to know you and then living completely contrary to your words. Forgive us, Lord, for where we fail. Help us to grow where you want us to grow. Sanctify us in the truth. Give us your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.